Buenos Newcom. In light of our recognition of Native American Heritage Month, I'm going to start off with a little bit of a confession. See, it used to be that I resisted letting loose with my Spanish in non-speaking uh, Spanish contexts. Not because I was ashamed or embarrassed or anything like that. If you know me, you know, I'm really proud about my Spanish and my culture and all that. But because growing up, um, I had way too many experiences of people cheapening or devaluing my linguistic culture. You know, the ending everything in O and all those kinds of things. And so I just didn't want to open up the door to that, right? I didn't want to have to experience that. Or on the counterpart, sometimes, you know, sometimes people just wanted to speak Spanish to show off what they knew. I didn't want to open that door to, to that either. So I kind of just didn't speak in Spanish if the context didn't call for it, if I was going to have an organic, natural conversation with someone. But then I started noticing that Native American theologians, whenever they introduced themselves, would start off in their native language. And they did so to honor their culture, their people. And it made me think about that. It made me think about how when they were doing that, they were creating a space to say, other languages are welcome here. So I decided I'm going to live out of a spirit of embrace and generosity and not of self-protection. So I decided to start, start shifting that. So I'm going to uh, do my piece now. Buenos dias, Newcom. Me llamo Armida Belmonte Stevens. Soy hija de dos mexicanos, la mayor de tres hermanos, la tía de cuatro sobrinos, que me dicen tía Imi, y la esposa de un hombre muy cariñoso y solidario. My name is Armida Belmonte Stevens. I am daughter to two Mexican parents, the eldest of three siblings, the aunt to four nephews that call me tía Imi, and the wife of one very loving and supportive man who many of you know as Benji, or Benjamin, excuse me. But in our house, uh, he goes by Benji or Benji Cakes. Sorry. So <laughs> that, that's a little bit about me. Um, so just wanted to share that piece with you all. Um, and, and, and also, I just wanted to say, haven't we had a blessed past several weeks with Dr. Dennis here. I have just so enjoyed that. He took us through First John last week. He kicked us off with this series on racial reconciliation. And I really appreciated the framework that he laid out for us in helping us understand that the work of racial reconciliation is not optional for the church. It's not an add-on or an elective, um, but it's, it's about us coming to live out the unity across societal divisions as something that is inherent to the gospel. That's the way that he framed it. And the gospel story, the good news of Jesus, shows us this very truth. We see this um, from his birth uh, to the resurrection. In demonstrating that in, in coming in the incarnation, he demonstrates crossing borders. He ruptures into our human history and world. Um, and we see that he brings together people who normally wouldn't hang out together. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Sellet, very different political persuasions, and yet they follow him, right? And we see also the inclusion of women in his ministry, also something that you wouldn't see at that time. And so what you see is that Jesus elevates and, um, the marginalized, and he restores them into community. Um, and, and we think about the woman with the bleeding problem in Mark 5, for example. Um, so clearly, Jesus is not concerned with uh, social status 
or with having the right people in his crowd. Um, he's not playing respectability politics. Um, Virgilio Lizondo, who is one of the first U.S. Latino theologians, used to say that Jesus scandalized everyone by not being scandalized by anyone. So the gospel that we preach should be good news to everyone, no matter who they are or where they live or what their story is. The church has been called to this work of breaking barriers and doing away with the divisions, structures, and systems that are the cause of so much fragmentation in our world, this cause of so much pain. And so we do this because that's exactly what Jesus did. Today we're starting off with a passage that describes this reconciling work of God. So we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body, of, body by human hands, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are, one, who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in the flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This, this passage is so beautiful. It's really about how we have been reconciled. This is my, my point for this um, piece. How we have been reconciled to be cross borders, to cross borders and barriers and that we can only do that because Jesus is our peace. This is a really rich passage, and if there's any question about the relationship of reconciliation to the gospel, it's right here. Jesus accomplishes reconciliation for us on the cross. And I find it really significant that after all of Jesus' ministry, where he models reconciliation, what reconciliation looks like, he didn't say, well, I'm out. I've shown you all how to do it. Just do what I did, bring together some really different folks, take them out, do ministry with them, let them get to know each other, let them sort out their differences, right? And then draw out the marginalized folks, be kind to them, and then uh, shake things up a little bit in the process so that you can change the system. That's, that's not what he did, right? Jesus' approach is much more radical than that. And he wasn't about reforming the system, but about transforming it. Jesus is about creating something new. And through his work on the cross, he creates a new humanity, a new family, as Dr. Dennis described last week. And that's what we're talking about. There's something radically different and impossible to achieve apart from the work of God here. And it's that we are called to be a family that breaks down barriers. Right? 
That's our call. And the context here is with the Jews and the Gentiles, they're people who don't really like each other. That's kind of an understatement, right? The, the Gentiles were oppressive to the Jews, and the Jews made sure to keep the Gentiles out as far as possible so that they couldn't enter the, the inner parts of the temple. And so there was this wall at the Temple of Jerusalem that was intended to separate the Jews and the Gentiles and to keep them and those who were ceremonially unclean out. And first century historian Josephus writes um, that there's this wall, and he gives the measurements. It was five, about, in our equivalents, five feet, two inches tall. And there were also these large stone inscriptions in Greek and in Latin um, at, the, at the temple that prohibited uh, Gentiles from entering, and if they did, it was punishable by death. Okay, so that's a little bit of the, the context for you. And relatedly, and this is my addition here, I also want to add that women were also um, partitioned off. There was a separate court for women. And um, I'd argue that because Jesus abolishes this wall between Jews and Gentiles, and we see later in Paul's letters that men and women were both worshiping together in house churches, that Jesus breaks down this barrier as well. And so what we see here is that we have people who were not previously allowed to be together being joined together. And in the context of worship, which is one of the most sacred, right, most important things, it's not just everyday life outside, it's, it's in the most inner, right, important things of our lives. And so what we see is that the work of Jesus on the cross has the effect of turning things upside down. He is doing something new, and this something new is that there's now one new uh, humanity, Jew and Gentile followers of Jesus who are fellow citizens and members of God's household. And so we see that this new family of Jews and Gentiles is not just worshiping in the same space in a, in a, in a temple. They are the temple. That's something really different. This is the place now where the Holy Spirit dwells. It's really transformative, different, new creation. And so what we see here is that there's something really, a new creation rupturing in into our human history. And so as a Latina, this passage really speaks to me. The walls, the keep out signs, the language of citizenship, it really reminds me of our own deeply racist history. And the stone inscriptions forbidding the Gentiles from passing are still amongst us in the form of all sorts of signs and signals that communicate that certain people are not welcome or warranted here. And you have here on this slide the one, uh, 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 an example of um, the signs that were up um, at the Jerusalem temple prohibiting entrance. But we also have other examples in our own culture of signs that are meant to keep people out. We have a history of this too. Our culture also reflects some of these hostilities that are mentioned here in scripture. And so I, I remember um, growing up, um, you know, growing up to immigrant parents, I was feeling a little bit different, you know, but as I started to, to get a little bit older and get out on my own, I started to experience some of those things myself that I saw my parents experience. And I have one recollection of being out at the grocery store, the reason why I included on the, on the slide a piece about not speaking Spanish is because um, I was minding my own business in the grocery store and talking on the cell phone with my mom, asking her for a recipe, and someone passes me and says really rudely, 
speak English, right? And that was the first of many other occurrences um, when, where that happened. And you know, when you're, when you're away from home and you're feeling homesick, that's the last thing that you need is someone to tell you you're not wanted here. Those are the kinds of things that um, would, would let me know this, this is not welcome here. You're not wanted. And we see that we have this physical wall at the border. It's, it's a physical barrier, a separation. Um, but we also have these other barriers that are very formative to us. They culturally shape us and determine or help us in, in our determining our, our belonging. Those us versus them debates, we need to pick a shot. We are forced or, or, or um, pressured, right, to pick a side. Our status and our worth sometimes gets uh, teased out in terms of whether or not we're insider or outsiders in different spheres. Um, and we also see that the value of our work is sometimes measured by um, how, to what degree it conforms um, to what we think will make us the most successful, even if it means excluding others. And I, have, I have an example of that. And these, these are the kinds of things that we see out in our culture, and, and maybe we can say, well, you know, that's, that's out there. But what I, I, I want to share these stories because the hard thing is that these things are still within the church. Right? We are not exempt from that. And we're working and, and trying to be faithful to, to God and, and working and walking in this journey of racial reconciliation. But still, these stories are, are, are hard. And so um, I, several years ago, this is at a different place than I work now. Um, I came to a meeting. This is the morning after I had just been watching CNN, watching images of refugee kids on the border and in cages. And I came to a meeting and um, we were discussing a ministry project that we were uh, working on. And the idea was floated that maybe it would be a good idea for us not to include um, people who uh, were Spanish speaking dominant because it would make things awkward or difficult um, if they couldn't communicate well enough um, with those um, in, in, in the others in the project. And it, it didn't end up happening. I'm really glad for that. But it was seriously considered. And the fact that it was ever on the table was really difficult for me. Um, the possibility that Christian ministry leaders who didn't speak English well enough might be pushed out in order to make things more comfortable or easier or maybe more successful in the eyes of others was really demoralizing. Right? And it was trust-breaking. And more than that, the message I took away from the conversation was that our voice and presence is dispensable and optional. Right? One kind of story. Another one has to do with something that just happened a couple of days ago. She's a Latina friend in ministry, and um, she calls with a really heavy heart, and she shares how a, uh, there was a retreat with some youth, and so some Latino youth that she knows went on this retreat with some other churches, um, with uh, white churches and, and their youth. And while they were there, the Latino youth were told some really damaging anti-immigrant and anti-Mexican statements. This was just a few days ago, maybe a week ago by now. And thankfully, this situation is being addressed, but the kids are deeply wounded. Um, the main theme that keeps coming up is, this happened to us at a Christian event. This doesn't happen to us at school, right? So we lamented how often our community feels invisible and ignored when it comes to conversations of race and justice in our churches. And it's safe to say that these churches that were participating in this retreat, that 
they're not ignorant of racial justice or racial reconciliation conversations. But we did wonder whether the kids had ever been taught from the church about anti-immigrant or anti-Latino racism. Would the retreat leaders have responded differently if they had known that threats of deportation for our kids are about as serious as the N-word for black kids, right? Um, so this is my appeal to you, church family, that we need to broaden our conversation beyond the white black framework. And I say this with all love, respect, and gratitude for the labor, pain, and sacrifice, and the leadership that our black sisters and brothers have given to us, the church, not just here, the church in the United States, to our country, right? In guiding these conversations in so many ways. So please don't hear this as an either or comment. Let's do away with the either this or that, right? This is a both and kind of comment. We need to continue the conversation and the work that has been done in racial reconciliation between our white and black sisters and brothers. And as a multi-ethnic church, we need to broaden that conversation to include other race and ethnic groups as well. Each of our groups has a history with the majority white culture. And this needs to be acknowledged as well, that there are different conversations that still need to happen amongst our different ethnic groups. But something that's even maybe harder to talk about is how amongst ourselves, there are tensions and histories and prejudices that we still need to tease out, right? And if we don't have those conversations, we only stunt our growth. We need to have those conversations. This is not either or, this is both and, this is we need to expand because we are a multi-ethnic church and we need to be able to have that diversity reflected in our conversations. And I'm not saying that it's never been that way. I'm just asking us to move more into this. And I'm so grateful for the work that Emily and Ruth and Carlton and, and Constance and others have been um, doing for a while here. So this is not a, a comment about um, we're not doing it, but it's we need to do it more. So we need to look at a passage like this and look at the paradigm of Jew and Gentile and know that all of us are in some way reflected in the realities described here. And it's very easy because it's two groups just to think in terms of maybe black and white or our culture in relation to white culture. But the reality is that we need to be more expansive in how we think about this conversation. And so the language here of this new people being fellow citizens and members of God's household is so important to remember. Uh, this idea of being fellow citizens and members of God's household is really key, especially in light of what we're seeing in our country with white Christian nationalism, which if you're not familiar with this term is the fusion of Christianity and American patriotism. A person who is a Christian nationalist is someone who can't tell the difference between what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be an American, right? That's how, that's how you would define that, right? because those two are so intertwined and distorted. It's the ideology behind the mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And for us, as people who have been reconciled to be reconcilers, reconcilers, we need to think long and hard about our values and our allegiances. Our passage talks about this new humanity now having a new citizenship together, a new place and a reorienting us to our allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. And I'm not saying that Christians can't be patriotic or proud to be Americans, 
But for a Christian, there is a fine line between loving your country and pledging ultimate allegiance to it. God reserves that kind of loyalty to himself, right? So maybe for some of y'all, Christian nationalism seems like something foreign or distant. That's not really the world that you live in. Um, and maybe, you know, it doesn't really affect me. And I'm going to guess that maybe for some of us, the temptation or the distortion is a little more subtle. It's far more common, I think, for us to think that being a Christian means that we are entitled to the good life, uh, that many of us might translate into the American dream. And that's probably because at some level, we have this unbiblical idea that Americans are God's chosen people. So when you read this passage from Ephesians 2, and if you find yourself immediately identifying with the Jews instead of the Gentiles, I wonder how much of this it's because we think that as Americans, our country is special to God in a way that others aren't. Right? And this kind of thinking is not the maybe full-fledged Christian nationalism, but it shows when American Christians who do mission, they're more evangelistic about culture than they are about the gospel. Right? We've seen that. Those are the effects of that kind of thinking. So whether it's Christian nationalism or American exceptionalism or arrogance, the root issue here is one of identity. And we have to keep going back to the truth that we are beloved children of God, created to be a new family in Christ Jesus. And this is the place from which all our work in racial reconciliation must start. That's the second point here. Um, that we do the work of racial reconciliation firmly rooted in who God has proclaimed and called us to be, not who we think we are or who we want to be. And this is why Paul starts his letter to the Ephesians with a reminder of what God has already done for them and who they already were in Christ. I really like the way the message spells this out, so that's where I'm going to read from. Chapter 1, starting with verse 4. Long before God laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What a pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We're a free people, free of penalties and punishments, chalked up by all our misdeeds, and not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. It is in Christ that you, once you heard the truth and believed it, this message of your salvation, found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. This down payment from God is the first installment on what's coming, a reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us, a praising and glorious life. 
That's why when I heard of the solid trust you have in the Master Jesus and your outpouring of love to all of the followers of Jesus, I couldn't stop thanking God for you. Every time I prayed, I'd think of you and give thanks. But I do more than that. I ask. Ask the God of our Master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning. And knowing him personally, your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what it is he is calling you to do. Grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for his followers. Oh, the extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. Let me say that I'm really glad that we are living in a moment where it feels like, at least for me, <laughs> that the evangelical church in the United States is finally starting to see and accept as true all the racial brokenness that so many people of color have been boldly and prophetically calling us to see for a really long time. And I'm keenly aware that we are living in the midst of what many of us are calling a, a second or a much larger civil rights movement, and that as a country, we have finally started to open our eyes to the racism pandemic that has plagued our country for centuries now. And as someone who has been deeply invested in these conversations and in racial reconciliation ministry for some time now, I've come to see how the work of racial justice to move us towards racial reconciliation can be so utterly exhausting for those who are leading to the point of burnout. And in many cases, this is because we have not had a spirituality for the journey to keep us grounded as we live out the call to be reconcilers. And as a people that God has brought together as a new family, we are now part of God's household. And we live under his oikonomia, which means household management. We live under a new economy, a new way of living as members of God's family. So check out the list of uh, the language here of abundance that characterizes chapter one and its description of God's gifts to his kids. We have been given every spiritual blessing. We have been lavishly given the glorious grace of God. We have been forgiven and are abundantly free. God has provided everything for us. And as I read this passage, two things are clear. God's economy, God's new way of living is not based on a zero-sum game where his kids have to compete for goods and where there are winners and there are losers. That's the message that culture gives us, right? A scarcity mentality has no place in God's household. It has no place. The second thing is that our new way of living is characterized by knowing that we are fully loved, forgiven, and accepted. And we don't have to work for our forgiveness or live under the yoke of guilt or fear. So sisters and brothers, our place in the journey of racial reconciliation must be firmly rooted in knowing that we serve a God of abundance and generosity. And I mentioned before that I've been invested in racial reconciliation um, ministry for some time, but if I'm honest, some of the ugliness and the competitiveness and self-seeking for validation and affirmation I've seen in some of these um, ministries or justice circles have at times made me a little cynical about it all. Just being honest about that. I don't think that that's the case, right, the, the root thing, but I, I, it has made me a little cynical. And so to my non-white sisters and brothers, I want to share and commit with you that we do not have to do this work feeling like there's not enough to go around for all of us. If we're honest, so often a scarcity mentality has been the reason why racial and ethnic 
groups can be so easily pitted against each other. And why we choose not to work with one another across racial differences because deep down there's a fear that our own issues and our own concerns won't get addressed if we have to share space with others. And I say this to myself as much as I do to you, but that kind of thinking is anti-gospel, plain and simple. There's no room for us to compete against each other when it comes to talking through issues and working out our common life together. God has called us to be co-laborers, collaborators for the gospel, not competitors. And we can be generous and gracious and know that God is the source of our provision. God's well will never dry up, will never run dry. Another thing about God's economy is that the outcome of racial reconciliation does not depend on us. It is good and right for us to do the hard work of educating ourselves and fully committing ourselves to the work God has called us to do. That is the part that we are called to do. We also need to continually ask ourselves why we are doing the work of racial reconciliation. And again, I don't say this out of judgment, but as someone who has over the years observed that some of my really amazing faithful friends who are committed to racial justice, they sometimes struggle with fear and guilt as motivators for the journey. So to my white brothers and sisters, I ask you, why are you involved or invested in racial reconciliation? If your work is driven by fear that you will be shamed of being a racist, or if you are racked by guilt, not repentance, not lament, not conviction, but guilt for things done in the past by white folks, or if you're driven to do all the things and to be the white ally because you have started to find your sense of worth and validation in being that, then you are still centering yourself. Fear, guilt, and trying to earn our acceptance are anti-gospel too. So friends, let us not create other forms of division with a scarcity mindset or by approaching our journey together out of a place of fear. We start from a place of knowing that we are loved and cared for and that there's nothing that we can do or say or not do or not say that hasn't already been covered and forgiven by God. We start the journey of racial reconciliation with one another, fully knowing our secure place with God, knowing that we are fully accepted. Because you know what? When things get tough, and they will, right, then the place you and I need to return to time and time again is the arms of Jesus, who will both comfort us and, if needed, set us straight. This journey doesn't depend on us. We are not messiahs. We already have one. So the journey doesn't depend on us, but we are called to depend on the Holy Spirit. And in a world that is so caught up with status, control, and power, God has given us instead the Holy Spirit who indwells us, individually and corporately. The Holy Spirit is the power that the church has to do her service. We're called to pray and to depend on the Holy Spirit to guide us on this journey together. And as we pray, we learn to listen to the voice of the Spirit. And when we listen to the voice of the Spirit, and we learn how to do that, then we can better listen to the voices of our sisters and brothers. I like how theologian Elizabeth Gondor Fraser describes um, that prayer is a conversation that we have with God. Uh, but she notes that so often when we pray, we, we come to God, we say our bit, 
and then we say thank you and then I'm in and then we you know we're done and she notes that like if we did that on a phone conversation with anybody else that would be considered so rude right you do your piece and then you wait and you listen and you want to know what that person wants to say to you. And that's the same thing that we have to do with the Holy Spirit. We wait and we listen to the Holy Spirit for a response to our prayers. And I think that's a good word. So I want to finish with an image that has stuck with me for a while since I heard it from uh, Edgar Colon Emmerich, who's a theologian as well. And he uses the metaphor of the symphony um, for the church. And he describes that um, the church is made up of, especially uh, the global church, but we can, as we're a multi-ethnic church, I think it applies here too, we can think of ourselves of, as all having a different piece to contribute. We all have a different part to play in a symphony. And we have before us a score, music that has been written out. We can kind of see that maybe that might relate to scripture and you know, some of the directives that we have there. And the Holy Spirit is the director of that symphony. And then we have the living word, Jesus, who is the, the, the loudest voice in the choir leading us in, in song. And I really like that vision of us as a, as a church community working together, all contributing to a bigger piece. For us, I want to change it up a little bit. And I want to suggest that maybe we're more like a jazz band, right? I want to say that, especially given that we're in the season of reconciliation, the reason for that is this. I think in a jazz band, right, you have two, two, two things that are different. One is that you have solos in jazz band in different, that are different than you would in a symphony. And when, when, that, when that instrument, the saxophone or the trombone or whomever is, is doing their piece, doing their solo, man, attention and focus is on them, on what they're doing. And that doesn't take away from anybody else, right? And then you move on, and then somebody else gets their piece, and they get to give their piece, right? And it's part of the whole performance. And what we have in the jazz band, too, is that there's moments where you don't have a written script. you got to improvise, right? got to improvise. And sometimes we find ourselves as a church in times where this is completely new. We don't know how to do this. And we have to improvise, and we do that because our conductor is still the Holy Spirit, right? Sometimes off to the side, when I was in high school, I had a, a jazz, um, jazz band teacher, and he would off, go, be off to the side. He'd always be there, setting, setting the time, bobbing his head. <laughs> and he would be having so much fun just listening to us, right? It didn't matter how we sounded. He had so much fun. And I kind of like that idea of, of, of the Holy Spirit delighting in us as we're together forming this combo, right? And then I really like also how um, in, 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 a, in a jazz band, you know, we, we get to take turns. Sometimes there's a little bit of dissonance in the music. And that's part of it. That's part of the music. There's dissonance. And you, you work through that in the music, right? There's resolution eventually. You go back and forth. There's conversation that happens in it. So I like to think about ourselves as maybe being a jazz band, right? We can, we can use that metaphor to think about ourselves, that we're, we're, we're playing something. We're playing in the key of, the, of um, scripture, right, as we improvise. By the way, improvising isn't making stuff up. I should have mentioned that earlier, right? Improv when you improvise, you, you improvise on the basis of scales and practice. There's a whole bunch that goes to it. So let me make sure that I clarify that piece, right? Um, but, but you know that, that we, we do that when, when we know the story, when we know scripture, when we've, that, those scales that we've worked on over and over again, we know the story, we know how it's supposed to go, we know how it's supposed to sound, we can improvise when we're familiar with the story, when we know 
um, what God is calling us to do. That's when we can go and we can depend on the spirit to lead us. So I just want to leave us with that metaphor, right? It does, it, it, it's not a metaphor where there's everything's smooth and everything's great. There's dissonance sometimes. And there's conversation, there's back and forth. But ultimately what we do is we play out the story that God has for us as a church. So let's pray. Gracious God, I just thank you so much for Newcom, for this family that has been such a gift to me. I thank you for the, the gift that you've given us of your love, of salvation through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. I thank you that we can be confident and have assurance that we are accepted and embraced by you as we do this journey of racial reconciliation. And I pray that you would help us to be those border crossers, those uh, barrier breakers that you have called us to be. I pray that you would help us to depend on your Holy Spirit as we do that work. And I pray that you would give us the grace to be able to do this work together in a way that honors you. I pray that you help us to listen well, that you help us to forgive quickly, and I pray that you help us to be honest in the process. So we give ourselves to you, Lord, asking you for your hand and for your direction in all that we say or do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.